Dear Heavenly Father, I come before you, come before these people, realizing that if I speak my own words, I'm wasting a lot of time here tonight. So I just pray, Lord, that you'll use me and that you will gain all the glory and that you will convict, that you will cut where it needs to be cut and heal where it needs to be healed. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. After six days, and I believe those were literal days of creating, God looked back at everything he had made, and behold, it was very good, the Bible says. So here we have God's perfect masterpiece, fresh from the hands of the Creator. This was his ideal plan, the culmination of, we don't know how long, of probably years and maybe tens of thousands of years of planning. Unadulterated by sin and death. So I want to just quickly review this plan with you from the Bible. And I have identified seven components of this plan. Now, I'm not going to argue with somebody who comes up with more, but I think there's at least seven unique components to the garden plan. <clears throat> First of all, location. Where was it? Genesis 2.8. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. What was the location? Okay, well, wrong answer. What, the garden. The garden was the location, right? Second, occupation. Genesis 2.15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. What was the occupation? Dress and keep the garden. Third component, family life, Genesis 2.18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. Also Genesis 2.24, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So, family life, well, let me read one more. Genesis 1, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply. So, God's plan for families was a husband and a wife and children. That's pretty straightforward. Fourth component, education. This has been talked about. I appreciated the, the sharing this morning. Um, and so we're not going to talk a lot about this. Not that it's not important, but I don't have time to cover all these. We're going to focus on those first three. The garden was the schoolroom. Nature was the lesson book. The creator was the instructor. From Education, page 20. The diet. What was the diet? Genesis 1, and God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree-yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. Dominion. Genesis 1, and 28. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And the last component, number seven, is what? Dominion. 
The Sabbath, I think I heard somebody say the Sabbath. Weekly rest, Genesis 2, 2 and 3. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. So there we have the seven, and again, you may think of some others, but the seven components that made up this original ideal plan. Now, I want you to look at this. The more nearly we come into harmony with God's original plan, the more favorable for recovery and preservation of health. That's 1787. Or an alternate wording, the more nearly we come into harmony with God's original plan, the more favorable will be our position to secure health of body and mind and soul. Ministry of Healing 365. Does that sound good? You want that? So, what do we need to do? Follow God's original plan. So, I want to spend a little time studying this, and I don't want to get bogged down in this, because I, I personally don't like to put a lot of quotes up. Um, but I feel like inspired words are much better than my own. So we're going to go through a number of quotes here pretty quickly because I want to make sure we understand. You know, I realize all of you understand this in theory, but are we living as close to God's original plan as we can? Are you? Okay, let's talk about location. The Creator chose for our first parents the surroundings best adapted for their health and happiness. Um, I don't need to explain anything with the, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. That's Ministry of Healing 261. The home of our first parents was to be a pattern for other homes as their children should go forth to occupy the earth. That home, beautified by the hand of God himself, was not a gorgeous palace. Why wasn't it a gorgeous palace? You know, God could create anything. could create, you know, build a house out of gold. Now, of course, I think in heaven, that's, we're going to have one of those, right? But why did God choose a garden and not a, a gorgeous palace. Men in their pride delight in magnificent and costly edifices and glory in the works of their own hands, but God placed Adam in a garden. This was his dwelling. And I've shortened some of these, but you know, she goes on to talk about how, you know, God hung the walls with ornate paintings, you know, I mean, you know, just the things of nature, and the, the trees were the roof, and the grass was the, was the floor. In the surroundings of the holy pair was a lesson for all time, that true happiness is found not in the indulgence of pride and luxury, but in communion with God through his created works. There's the location. Occupation. The creator of man knew that this workmanship of his hands could not be happy without employment. You know, why did Adam and Eve have to work? They didn't have to earn money. They didn't... It's not like, um, you know, they, they needed to pay the electric bill, right? Right? Why did, why did they need to work? 
Paradise delighted their souls, but this was not enough. They must have labor to call into exercise the organs of the body. Health Reformer, July 1, 1872. Now, we talk about laboring or working, but for most of us, that working has very little to do with really laboring, right? I mean, we go to work, and it's usually pretty sedentary. We're going to talk more about that. But this is talking about exercising the organs of the body. The creator of man never designed that he should be idle. It was the law of nature, therefore the law of God, that brain, nerve, and muscle should be in active motion. Exercise in useful labor will be carrying out the original plan of God when he bade Adam and Eve to dress the garden. Health Reformer, May 1, 1873. Exercise in useful labor. And as has already been pointed out, dress and keep the garden... The, the most popular use of the word, the Hebrew word for dress, is to serve, to serve the garden. God put man in the garden to serve it, and, the, and keep is to guard and protect it. Okay, let's keep going. Family life. God is very clear that this family life started with a deep companionship between male and female within the bands of marriage. Oops. Without companionship, the beautiful scenes and delightful employment of Eden would have failed to yield perfect happiness. Even communion with angels could not have satisfied Adam's desire for sympathy and companionship. Eve was created from a rib taken from the side of Adam, signifying that she was not to control him as the head, nor to be trampled under his feet as an inferior, but to stand by his side as an equal, to be loved and protected by him. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 46. Do you get the picture of God's design for family? Now, I just want to say, you know, most of us, when we think of family, you know, you, you, you see a husband and wife and you say, do you have a family? Now, do you have children? Husband and wife are a family. You don't need to have children to be a family. Okay, let's go on to education quickly. And again, we're going to kind of skim through this because it's been talked about. The system of education instituted at the beginning of the world was to be a model for man throughout all after time. What was that system? Well, let's look at this one. The book of nature, which spread its living lessons before them afforded an exhaustless source of instruction and delight. On every leaf of the forest and stone of the mountains, in every shining star, in earth and sea and sky, God's name was written. With both the animate and the inanimate creation, with leaf and flower and tree, and with every living creature, from the Leviathan of the waters to the mode of the sunbeam, the dwellers in Eden held converse. What does held converse mean? Do you comprehend what we just read? Can you imagine? I, I mean, I can't. I I can, I can imagine, but I can't comprehend what it was like for Adam and Eve to be able to hold converse with both animate and inanimate creation. So rock. 
how did you get so beautiful? I don't know. What, you know, what did they do? Um, you know, from the Leviathan of the waters, can you imagine them swimming out there to the Leviathan? So what do you do all day? Um, to the moat in the sunbeam, the dwellers in Eden held converse gathering from each the secrets of his life. Do you all hold converse in the garden with your plants? God wants us to. I, I'll confess, I feel like I don't really know how to do that yet. I, I try to hold converse with God, but yeah, this is amazing. A portion of their time was to be occupied in the happy employment of dressing the garden and a portion in receiving the visits of angels, listening to their instruction and in happy meditation. So it was a balanced education. They didn't work all day in the garden. That would have gotten old probably. But they took time, a portion of their time, to converse with angels and learn. You know, well, this is Gabriel. He's going to teach you about biology. And this is whoever. Um, and then, of course, we know that the happy pair greeted with joy the visits of their creator. As in the cool of the day, he walked and talked with them. Daily, God taught them his lessons. Would you like to walk and talk with God in the garden? Do you think he still wants to do that? Again, these education, diet, dominion, and the Sabbath rest, we're only going to touch on here, and then we're going to leave them, not because they're not important, but, I, but because I feel like they get more emphasis already, and so we're going to leave it at this. But diet, in order to know what are the best foods, this is a quote, we must study God's original plan for man's diet. Grains, fruits, nuts, and vegetables constitute the diet chosen for us by our Creator. These foods, prepared in as simple and natural a manner as possible, are the most healthful and nourishing. Any questions on that? Where do you find those foods in as simple and natural manner as possible? Straight from the garden. Dominion. While they remained true to God, Adam and his companion were to bear rule over the earth. Unlimited control was given them over every living thing. And then finally, Sabbath rest. And again, I'm not going to say more on that because I feel like our church is doing a, a fairly good job of talking about Sabbath rest. So there you have the ideal plan as set out by the Creator. Could we call it the Maker's Manual? But sadly, as we all too are, are all too well aware, Sin entered the world and marred this idyllic plan. But I want to ask you this evening, what part of God's ideal plan actually changed when sin entered the world? Or maybe more accurately, I should ask, what didn't change? Did the location change? Yeah, they, they had to leave the garden and forfeit access to the tree of life. But were they given a different plan? Did God say, now you need to go live somewhere else besides the garden? Well, speaking of the time of the patriarchs, Mrs. White says the people who were under his direction still pursued the plan of life that he had appointed in the beginning. 
If they were still pursuing it in the time of the patriarchs, how long was that after creation? A couple thousand years at least. Um, It doesn't look like the plan was changing, was it? The men who held fast God's principles of life dwelt among the fields and hills. Are we wanting to hold fast God's principles of life? Where do we need to dwell? Occupation. Did that change? Well, their work was made more difficult. We know that. The ground was cursed. They now had weeds, right? Thorns and thistles. But did God give them a different occupation? What does the Bible say? He sent them forth from the garden to do what? Till the ground from which they came. When he, Adam, was driven from his beautiful home as the result of his disobedience and was forced to struggle with a stubborn soil to gain his daily bread, that very labor, although far different from his pleasant occupation in the garden, was what? A safeguard against temptation. And what else? A source of happiness. Even though the ground was cursed, even though it had thorns and thistles, God gave man that work as a source of happiness and as a safeguard against temptation. Do we need safeguards against temptation in this world? The garden is a safeguard against temptation. Referring to the children of Israel again, we read, By the distribution of the land among the people, God provided for them, as for the dwellers in Eden, the occupation most favorable to development. What's the occupation most favorable to development? The care of plants and animals. Now, I told you I'm a farmer, right? I mean, I hope you don't feel like I'm biased at all in sharing these. I'm just trying to be honest to the scriptures and the spirit of prophecy. Okay, what about family life? Did that change after the fall? Well, in the creation God had made, God had made her, this is talking about Eve, the equal of Adam, right? We read that by her by his side. Had they remained obedient to God in harmony with his great law of love, They would ever have been in harmony with each other. But sin had brought discord, and now their union could be maintained and harmony preserved only by submission on the part of the one or the other. Eve had been the first in transgression, and she had fallen into temptation by separating from her companion. She was now placed in subjection to her husband. Now, if we had time to go on and read the rest of the context... She says that, you know, man has abused that, right? We know that. But did God want man to have woman under his heel after the fall? Where did God want man to stay? I mean, woman to stay? By the side. Yes, she's in subjection, but it should be like our subjection to Christ. Is that hard? Well, I guess it is, but it shouldn't be. So what changed when Adam and Eve ate the fruit? Well, you could say everything changed. But yet God's plan and ideal remain the same. Did that change? So does this still apply today? 
The more nearly we come into harmony with God's original plan, the more favorable for recovery and preservation of health. Does that, does that still work in 21st century America? In spite of 6,000 years of degradation and sin, we are still being called to come as close to the original plan as possible. Do you believe it? I hope you do, because you're here. So that's the Bible and spirit of prophecy lesson. Now we're going to have a little history lesson. For the next approximately 5,800 years, those who were under God's direction followed quite closely God's plan of life that he had appointed in the beginning. They were largely tillers of the soil and keepers of flocks and herds, living an agrarian life. Yes, there were a few revolutionary changes that took place through the centuries. The invention of the wheel made the world go around a little faster. People got more efficient at killing each other with the advent of gunpowder. Uh, and the printing press made the dissemination of information much easier. But overall, life remained much as it had been for centuries and millennia for those who were following God's plan of life. Then something happened toward the end of the 1700s that changed civilization dramatically. Are you all history students? What are your, your good prophecy students, right? Good Adventist students of prophecy. What happened at the end of the 1700s? The, the time of the end began, right? Is that right? Daniel 12. Now, do you think it is a coincidence that the Industrial Revolution also began in the late 1700s? Was that chance? Now, I'm not going to say that the Industrial Revolution was evil, but I would like to suggest tonight that the devil used it in powerfully destructive ways. Could it be that this was his counterattack to the increased interest in Bible study and prophecy? Do you think he knew the prophecy about the time of the end? Do you think he had a plan to counteract it? In the Industrial Revolution, wave after wave of innovation crashed against the vestiges of God's Edenic model with staggering and sobering results. And I just want to briefly review this with you. The agricultural revolution actually first made producing food more efficient, freeing or forcing, depending on your viewpoint, many people to leave the land and migrate to the cities. In England, for example, the proportion of the population living in cities jumped from 17 percent in 1801, 17 percent of the English population lived in cities to 72 percent in 1891. In 90 years, the population of the cities of England went from 17 percent to 72 percent. This urbanization movement provided much of the manpower and woman power and child power for the Industrial Revolution. 
I want you to look at this. The percentage of world's population living in the cities. In 1800, 3% of the world's population lived in urban areas. By 1900, and this is world population now, almost 14% were urbanites. But it speeds up. In 1950, 30% of the world's population resided in urban centers. In 2008, the population of the cities of the world passed the population of the rural areas. And now they're expecting that by 2050, over 70% of the world's population will be urban. In 2010, a total of 80.7% of Americans lived in urban areas. That's four out of five Americans lives in an urban area. Here's another interesting statistic percentage of Americans involved in farm occupations in 1850, no, sorry, 1820, it was 72% of Americans were involved in agriculture. In 1850, that number was down to 64%. 1920, it was down to 30%. 1987 it was down to 2%, and now less than 2% of Americans are involved in agriculture. Less than 2% of Americans are tillers of the soil and keepers of flocks and herds. Many of the rest think that food comes from grocery stores. We have become so disconnected from the land and nature that professionals have now coined the term nature deficit disorder. We're out of touch. So, but the question is why should this urbanization movement be disturbing to us? Well, we've been looking at the original plan. Ever since paradise was lost, the Bible and spirit of prophecy chronicled the fact that those who followed God's plan of life remained where? In the garden, in rural locations. While those who turned from God's plans, what did they do? They built and occupied cities. Cain was the first city builder we know. So this is the problem. Cities concentrate evil. And they surround their residents with the things that man has made. Why is that a problem? Because by beholding, we become changed. If all you see is what man has made, what are you going to be changed into? What man is, and in the cities, man is not, not, uh, not something we should be following. Okay. I just looked at the time. To those who think they can live in the city and not be affected negatively, I just plead with you to study closely the story of Lot. You know, Lot was a good Seventh-day Adventist who wanted to be a positive witness in the city. 
course, it didn't hurt that the city was good for his business, too, but, you know, he really did want to witness, right? Who had the greater impact on Sodom, Lot or Abraham? I would just challenge any of you who are still in the cities, um, you know, if the events of the last few years, the natural disasters have not woken you up, then I just pray that an angel will pull you out while there's still time. Okay, we got to move on. After the initial waves of the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution came crashing in on its heels like a giant tidal wave. Factories and industries first took men, then women, and finally children out of the home and confined them in dangerous, dingy surroundings for 10, 12, or 14 hours a day effectively unraveling the ties that had bound families together on the land for thousands of years. No longer were they working side by side in the fields and gardens, or working together in cottage industries, spinning, weaving, all of that. Instead, they were all separately occupied in a grim struggle for survival. Labor began to evolve into more sedentary occupations, and the need for physical exercise was met more through sports and other forms of non-productive recreation and amusement. You know, even as late as 1960, 50% of Americans were involved in an occupation that was um, physical, now, less than 20% of jobs have any significant level of physical activity. After sitting all day at work, we come home and sit on the couch and watch someone else being paid millions of dollars to run around on TV. Now, this change of occupations from largely physical to mostly sedentary has had drastic effects on physical health and well-being, as any doctor can tell you. With obesity just being the most visible, but my bigger concern is how the social and moral foundation of families has been impacted. Farm families work together. Agrarian families work together. City families work apart. You know, Genesis 2 tells us that it's not good for man to be alone. Genesis 3 tells the sad story of what happened when the woman was alone. Look at this. The angels had cautioned Eve to beware of separating herself from her husband while occupied in their daily labor in the garden. With him, she would be in less danger from temptation than if she were alone. Husbands, wives, are you separated from your spouse while occupied in your daily labor? If so, you are more susceptible to temptation than if you were together. Do you believe that? It is not good for man or woman to be alone. And when I, I, I believe what the Bible is saying is not alone as in nobody else around, but alone as in your companion is not around. Is that a fair, fair interpretation? Men, if you spend more of your day with other women than you do with your wife, you are asking for trouble. Of course, it works the same way for women in the workplace, too. 
Way too often I hear stories of divorce and affairs in good Adventist Christian families, and it's almost always because the couples were too much apart. It's not good for man to be alone. Genesis 4 tells the story of children being alone. Now, we don't know how old Cain and Abel were. They probably weren't children. Um, they probably pretty much adults. But what happened when they were alone? They got into trouble, right? Would that have happened if they'd been with Adam and Eve? I don't think so. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, we see a beautiful picture of families being together. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. What a beautiful picture of families being together. How novel is that? Living life together. Led by God and not by the demands of bosses or jobs that can't wait. You know, I'm going to share a little more of our testimony tomorrow, but I can remember always feeling so frustrated when my wife needed help with the kids, and I had to say, honey, I'm sorry, I, I got to go, I can't help you. And now, you know, just a couple weeks ago, we had the coldest stretch of weather we've had in a very long time in Tennessee. And our pond froze so thick that we could walk out on it and ice skate. And so I was actually working on these talks. And the kids wanted to go up to the pond. Kids, they're pretty much grown now. But my young people wanted to go skating on the pond. So I said, let's go. I don't have to tell my boss that I... You know, I don't have to call in sick or, or, you know, take vacation days. I can just go up to the pond and go ice skating. Well, first, back to the Industrial Revolution, it was steam power. Then came the internal combustion engines and then electricity, all of which dramatically altered life and labor. And... I'm sure that there are many who would argue that it increased the quality of life, but I'm suggesting tonight that all these advances have a darker side, taking us farther and farther from God's original plan. Speaking of the dark side, what about the electric light bulb as an example? With the advent of electric lights, Man could more easily burn the midnight oil without having to use oil at all, right? Just flick the switch. But I want to ask you, how late can you stay up at night and still come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses? For me, walking and talking with God in the garden in the morning is directly related to how early I get to bed at night. Which is harder when the lights are whispering, come on, just a little longer. It's not going to hurt anything. Now, I know many of you are probably thinking, this is going too far. Is he saying that electric lights are evil? No, I'm not saying that, but I am suggesting that progress comes at a price, and we need to count the cost through God's eyes. So let me hurry on here. Another simple example, before the advent of electricity, 
families huddled around the wood stove in the wintertime to keep warm, right? But they didn't just huddle around the stove. They didn't just share warmth. They also shared valuable family time, reading or telling stories. And then, of course, there was the cutting of the wood and the hauling and the splitting and the stacking. It was all or often done as a family project, building memories together. In the summer, the covered porch was the coolest part of the house, and families often spent afternoon and evenings shelling peas, shucking corn, knitting or mending. Together, they were together. But with progress, progress came central heat and air. And now everyone can be comfortable in their own rooms, doing whatever they want to do. Then we could talk about climate control. You know, windows used to be open wide at night to let the cool air in, as well as the songs of crickets and tree frogs and whippoorwills. Now, people live in these hermetically sealed environments, many times never even getting outside in the day. Spending eight or ten hours in their little cubicle at work and going to the elevator and getting into their climate-controlled car and going into their garage that's climate-controlled and repeating it again the next day, and we call this progress. Well, I could rail on about this progress, but time doesn't permit. The crescendo of revolutionary waves mercilessly eroded society as we entered the 20th century. There was the revolution of the automobile and the airplane, which took families farther and farther apart. And the electrical revolution continued almost at the speed, well, the speed of electricity. There was the telephone, then the radio, and the television. Now, it could be argued that radio and television brought families back together in the living room again. Right? For a while. But the reading and storytelling were gone. It was all passive. And then the family togetherness only lasted as long as the sets were big enough that they had to be in the living room. As soon as portable radios and televisions came in, families went their different ways with their different programs so they could do what they wanted to do. You know, Elida this morning talked about the dangers of reading fiction. I would like to suggest that the dangers of watching fiction are even greater than reading fiction. Personal computer entered in the 80s, and the World Wide Web, World Wide Web, was woven in the 90s. We all know how sticky that web is, don't we? Then, moving on, in 2007, Apple sparked the smartphone revolution. Now, I realize there were some other smartphones out there before that, but it was Apple and the iPhone that revolutionized the world. 2007, 10 years ago. Can you imagine? Do you remember life without smartphones? It seems a long time ago, doesn't it? Perhaps no other device in history, this is a quote from an industry expert, has embedded itself in the lives of everyday consumers more than the smartphone. The only other technology that even comes close is 
television in the 1950s. That took over the country pretty fast, but not as fast as smartphones have taken over the world. PC Magazine projects that by 2020, 70% of the world's population will own smartphones. 70% of every man, woman, and child in the world will own a smartphone. Already, 77% of Americans own smartphones. South Korea leads the world with 88% of its population having smartphones. Now, I'm not a prophet, but my personal prediction is that smartphones are going to be the weapon of choice for the devil's last desperate assault on Christians. Think about it. You have all the world's accumulated knowledge of good and evil at your fingertips to be viewed from the privacy of your bedroom. A pocket version of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eve had to go looking for the forbidden fruit. Now it comes to you with super retina display and 256 gigabytes of storage. No longer is country living the safe haven it used to be before internet and smartphones. The city is now in your pocket. Amen. Now for the sake of full disclosure, I must admit that I have a smartphone. But I will also tell you that my wife and I have fairly regular discussions. Have we allowed the world too much into our lives? They are incredibly powerful tools for good or evil. I got to share this quickly here. Share what happened on our way to this conference. Series navigating us down the highway. And Series says, get off in two miles. So we got off. And we're going, this was in Texas, I think about 80 miles or so north of Dallas. You know, they have these frontage roads in Texas. That's kind of a Texas thing, I guess. Um, so we're driving along, along the freeways right there. It's, why are we over here? <laughs> and finally, Siri seemed a little confused, but finally we came to a stoplight. Siri said, turn left. We went under the freeway, and Siri said, continue on straight ahead. And my wife and I kind of look at each other. It's this little country lane. And, you know, sometimes Siri seems to know shortcuts, so maybe there's an accident or something. I don't know. So we started down that little country lane, and we'd only gone a few hundred feet when I realized that our tire was flat. We got out, changed the tire. We were just praising God. You know, one vehicle passed the whole time we were changing the tire. It was the perfect, if you have to, I, I should have known the name of the road. It, perfect place to change a tire. Um, we got the tire changed. I said, honey, where's the nearest tire store? It was literally just across the freeway. And there was a Walmart right there as well. My wife needed to buy some groceries. So she bought the groceries. I got 
new tire. We got back on the freeway and put in our destination again. And Siri said, continue on Interstate 30 for 80 miles. Did Siri take us off the freeway? I, I'm not going to give Siri credit for that. Siri's dumb. <laughs> God used Siri. Isn't that amazing? So I got to bring balance here, but uh, incredible. The only reason we got off there was because God knew our tire was going to go flat. That's a God who loves us. So back to the smartphone, I believe the key words are self-control and accountability. How much time are you spending on it, and are you accountable to someone else? Everyone should have someone else with access to all your accounts and devices. Wives, do you have the passwords and access to your husband's devices? That's not being untrusting, that's being a helpmeet. There should be no secrets on our phones or devices. Parents, if you have children or youth with smartphones and you are not holding them accountable, you better pull your head out of the sand quickly before your children are so far down the road to hell that there's no turning back. You know, it's hard to know what statistics to believe on the internet. I'm almost done, I promise. But some say that 30% of all internet searches, 35% of all downloads are pornography. 90% of 8- to 16-year-olds have viewed pornography online. In just 10 years, our society has changed dramatically and permanently, and it's not for the better. Yeah, they're they're a powerful tool, but gone are the days when you talk to people in the airport, right? It's hard to even help somebody by the side of the road anymore because they've already called for roadside assistance and they don't even want to roll down their window. So before I close, I want to make sure I'm not being misunderstood. I'm not saying that everyone needs to be a farmer. I'm not saying that technology is evil. But I am trying to reason from cause to effect, and I am trying to say that I believe progress is a relative term that we need to prayerfully analyze. So, to just try to summarize, God created the divine blueprint. He knew what was best for man. And he laid it all out in the garden. Those who tried to follow him after sin, those who sought to follow him after sin, continued that plan quite successfully for almost 5,800 years. In the last 200 years, that plan has almost been totally forgotten. We've got an urban location. We've got sedentary occupation. We've got families being pulled apart in every direction. Diet, you know. The Industrial Revolution took all the good stuff out of our food, right? And concentrated the bad stuff. It's not a pretty picture. We've gone from best 
to worst. And just when we think it can't get any worse, it does. But I want to leave you with this last quote. Our past life with its mistakes is not a pleasant picture to look upon, but it must be held up to our view that we may desire something better. May we desire something better tonight. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you that you have offered something better than what this world has to offer. Thank you that you have a better plan. Thank you that it's not too late to come closer to your original ideal. Lord, give us wisdom, give us strength, give us courage to move towards that ideal, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.